Well, uh, this morning we are in for a special treat. Gilbert Foster is here. If you remember him from last summer, he is a Scotsman. And as soon as he opens up his mouth, you will recognize that about him. Uh, who has been said about him uh, for many years, gives his life to helping people and helping churches. He's the co-founder of the nonprofit children's charity, When I Grow Up, and you'll see a video about that organization in just a bit here, but is also chief consultant for a global consulting firm. Um, but I know him best as one of our leading pastors here in our region. Thirteen years ago, he came to uh, Reedley, California, and it's made a huge difference down in that area. Today, he works for our denomination called Growing Healthy Churches as the recruitment and development consultant. Uh, Growing Healthy Churches, one of our American Baptist regions up here in Northern California that serves over 150 churches that we are one of those and a part of that denomination. Um, he lives and breathes, though, to obviously communicate the message of Jesus Christ, but also the achievable goal of kicking extreme poverty off of the planet in this generation. That's what he wants to see in the message that God has laid upon his heart to do that. And he knows that Jesus is the hope of the world and that churches are to lead in that endeavor, bringing justice and empowerment to this world. And so we're going to see a video here that talks a little bit more about this concept. Uh, and then Gilbert Foster will open up God's word. And I know you will be blessed today. So let's take a look at this. I love Twixes. As I drive around the U.S. and beyond sharing the story of extreme poverty, I eat them all the time. Like, well, like a three-hour car drive, you bet I'll eat one, if not two. It's like a dollar fifty or something to buy them, and every gas station has them just waiting for me to buy. Stay with me. Four young guys after finishing high school in Nairobi, Kenya, could have got a $25 a week job, which would have delivered them from the slum that they lived in but they chose to stay in the slum. They made that choice because they saw hundreds of children who, without help, would never get to school, let alone graduate from school. So they stayed in the slum, made no money, but started to tutor the poorest of the poor, forgotten, invisible children within Haruma slum. After a short time, they were tutoring 60 children, selling stuff that they found in trash heaps to put food on their own tables. They decided it was time to start a proper school, and that needed a name. So all of the four young guys suggested a name, and then something happened. One of them died, Jared. Malaria got him. Poverty sucks because poverty kills, and it kills real people, people I know. And here's the kicker. The price of this Twix bar would have kept him alive. Malaria medicines are not expensive, a couple of bucks only. But Jared and his friends live in poverty and they didn't even have enough to buy a Twix bar or the medicines. And Jared, this vibrant, committed, gifted young leader, needlessly, tragically died for the cost of a Twix bar. This can't happen again, not on our watch, not in this generation. And we're asking you to help us. Since the start of 2015, over 300 children in Faraha have been sick, some seriously sick. With our partners in Haiti and Guatemala, that total grows to over 700 children who have been sick. Can you help us? 
The cost of medicine to treat malaria is $2 for enough medicine to stop it. Antiretroviral drugs needed by many children to treat their HIV, it costs about $10 for one treatment and $100 for a year's treatment. And many of our children will be on antiretroviral drugs for their lifetime. Medicines like Cipro or other antibiotics cost between $10 to $25 per course of medicine. The social and health workers are a vital part of our partnerships. Paying their salaries and giving them the resources to care for the children when they're not in school is something that we can do better at. So join us. Join us to ensure no child needlessly dies for the cost of a Twix. Maybe this week, give up the Starbucks or the Chipotle and give us some Twixes and we can raise some vital funding. Go online and give us enough to buy some medicines that will save a life, literally. Well, good morning, Stockton. You know, it was great being in Stockton last year, July the 4th. Brad let me come and preach as a British guy on your kind of special weekend. You know, you guys call it revolution. We call it tyranny. Uh, he didn't ask me back for the July the 4th weekend for some reason. But being the political season, I have a slogan that I think might help you, and I could preach this one pretty well. Make America Great Britain Again. That would work, wouldn't it? That would solve most of your problems, okay? But it, it's, it's great being in Stockton. It's nice to get out of the heat of Fresno. No, no, that was last week, okay? Last week I was in San Francisco. I think it was 58 degrees when I arrived there and 56 when I left. But this week I just get to drive up the 99 to Stockton and I cook with you guys because it's going to be a triple-digit week in the, in the valley, okay? And Pastor Brad said to me a tie was optional. He should have said pants were optional. It's that hot, okay? <laughs> but you don't want to see my white legs. But thanks, Pastor Brad, for uh, the kind invite back. I don't often get invited back. I don't, don't know what it is. But uh, I'm excited to see and hear all that's happening in this church, the new, the different, the fresh, uh, because Stockton needs a vibrant and a hope-filled First Baptist Church. And you guys are the ones that will be new and vibrant and hope-filled for the people of this community. So the Twix video is completely true. I eat them all the time. I mean, like it was a two-hour drive here this morning? You bet, I had one, okay? But the cost of one of these here could have kept Jared alive. Poverty sucks, which is also my Twitter handle. Poverty sucks. It kills real people, people I know. Uh, listen to this beat, okay? not that hard to beat, and it doesn't stop. Every three and a half seconds, a child dies because of hunger-related diseases. And here's the kicker. Just a bite of a Twix, not even the whole bar, 
but like just a wee nibble of it, 20 cents worth, would keep that child alive. Because that's all it takes to feed a kid in our world. 20 cents. And yet every three and a half seconds, a child dies. So since we've started this service, over 490 children have lost their lives for no crime of their own, just because of where they live. But where, should you, where, but where, where you live should not determine if you live. Not in our modern world. Surely not. So when I found out that Jared died for the cost of a Twix, it wrecked me. And, and I've never been the same again. In this day and age, my generation, young, gifted, beautiful people, die because they can't afford even just one Twix. And yet, I can go into Costco, <laughs> buy a box load, and not even think twice as I swipe my debit card. This is wrong. And my faith, my faith compels me to say, no more, no more. I, I, I've been a pastor for over 20 years. I, I led a growing church, baptized hundreds of people. And as a part of that church, we decided that we wanted to focus our mission attention on helping the poorest of the poor. Like, I think somewhere in the Bible talks about that being pure religion. So we decided, let's go and find the poorest of the poor. And so we're looking for AIDS orphans, children, who had nobody to care for and were probably going to be hit by disease that was going to get them pretty quickly. And it ended up in East, in, in East Africa, and it took us to a slum. In the slum, 600,000 people. So think of Galt, just up the road a little bit. Think of the size of Galt, two square miles, and that's the size of the slum with 600,000 people. And we found four young guys who were all Christian guys. They could have got a job in the city, which would have paid them $5 a day, but they chose to stay in the slum and began to start this school. And they were doing amazing work educating the poorest of the poor and empowering them out because education is what they need to get empowered. And this was the gospel in action. And we wanted to be a part of that. So 10 years later, they're some of our closest friends. And we've got partners in Guatemala City and in Haiti and it's just a blast what's happening, running schools and feeding programs and social and healthcare programs and micro-businesses and safe houses and pastor training institutes and, and churches. And, and over 8,000 people every day are being empowered to hope and to life to escape from purgatory, hell. We believe that all life is precious. It's not just a human rights issue, mind you. We believe that Jesus, the gospel, was good news for the poor. And we want to live that out. So I am more alive doing this than I was leading a church. And, and, and I love it when people join the movement and start to help. So today, you can join the movement. And I've made it really easy for you this morning. You can buy a Twix bar off of me. And we'll use that money to help those kids, okay? Uh, I, and you can buy this Twix at the end. Just come to the front here and throw down your dollars or whatever. And, and you can say, no more. And this Twix is just a symbol that says, no more. We're going to kick this off our, 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 our planet while we're still alive. No more. So there's a price for the Twix. 
And uh, it's not two dollars. It's not even a dollar fifty. It's not even a buck. I'm Scottish. We invented the economic system. And I used to be a banker. 20 bucks minimum. $20 minimum. And you can come and put the cash in the box at the end and take away a Twix as a symbol of saying, no more to poverty, to extreme poverty. We're going to kick it off. And you can even write me a check. You could make it payable to when I grew up. Follow us on Facebook, okay? Uh, and just come at the end and do that, okay? And you've joined the movement, okay? And if I could, like somebody could just buy the box from me, okay? Like a check for $500 would buy the box. Okay, come on! You got it. I mean, you've given your tithe already. So anything you've got in your pocket, spare. Okay? So just come and do it at the end of the service, okay? And uh, if I can get rid of the whole box, then I can go back to my purgatory in Fresno, uh, which, which is hotter than Stockton. I can go back there happy that I've raised some money to help the poorest of the poor. And you've joined the movement to kick extreme poverty off the face of the earth. Okay, stay with me. Open your Bibles to Mark's Gospel, chapter 4. We're going to read the story of the stilling of the storm. And you probably, if you're a Christian, know this story. But stay with me as we read it, and then we're going to spin it a little bit differently this morning, and we'll get you out of of here right on time, which is, I think, to be 1040, okay? So, Mark's Gospel, chapter 4, quieten your souls as we open and read Holy Scripture today. On that day, verse 35, when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So after leaving the crowd, they took him along just as he was in the boat, and other boats were with him. Now a great windstorm developed, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was nearly swamped. But he was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. They woke him up and said to him, teacher, don't you care that we're about to die? So he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, be quiet, calm down. Then the wind stopped, and it was dead calm. And he said to them, why are you cowardly? Do you still not have faith? They were overwhelmed by fear and said to one another, Who is this man? Even the wind and the sea obey him. Now now keep your Bibles there because we're going to go into chapter 5 as we go through this talk, okay? But imagine yourself as a young Jewish teenage boy or teenage girl. And from an early age, you had been taught that the God that you call El Shaddai, Elohim, Adonai, this one and true God made a promise to your forefathers, particularly to Abraham. The Holy Scriptures held that promise. Genesis chapter 12, I, says the Scriptures, will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, says God, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. That's an amazing promise. And for that promise to be outworked, Abraham had to pay a price. And 
God said to him in Genesis chapter 12, I want you, Abraham, to leave your country, your people, your father's household, and I want you to go to the land that I will show you. <laughs> Seems a little bit vague to me, okay? Like if you're heading out somewhere, you know, just, just go and I'll show you, okay? I, I would like a little bit more detail than what Abraham was given. And this is true. This is the only time in history of the world when a man and a wife would be traveling. And the wife says to her husband, where in the world are we, darling? And the husband says to the wife, God only knows. (laughs) And it's true because that's the story, okay? And every Jewish boy and every Jewish girl knew the next two words in the story. The next two words were, Walechem Avram. Walechem Avram. Avram, Abraham went. Their incredible history began because one man went. One man obeyed. One person trusted. And Abraham went to the land that God would show him. And even though his wife seemed to be barren and old, she gave birth to a son named Isaac. And Isaac then had a son named Jacob. And then Jacob had 12 sons. And they became the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is the promise. And Abraham went to, uh, and, 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 and Israel went through centuries waiting for all that God promised to be outworked, for them to be blessed and be a blessing. Uh, but by the time Jesus came along, their story seemed pretty dark and pretty disappointing. They were under the yoke of Roman oppression. They had already been under the yoke of Babylon oppression. And now they were under the yoke of Roman oppression. They were in exile over centuries, and they were only down to two and a half tribes out of the 12. But they were still waiting because they still believed. They were still waiting that the kingdom would be restored, that the tribes would come together again. And and they talked about this, waiting for the restoration of the kingdom, waiting for that promise to make them into a great nation to be outworked. In fact, at the time of Jesus, they were arguing over how it would happen. (laughs) Imagine people in like a church arguing, you know? Big fights. There was one group called the Zealots. And these Jewish people said, the kingdom was going to come when we finally have enough courage to take up our swords and throw off the Roman power ourselves. Let's attack them. They were militia, the zealots. Oh, no, 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 said the Essenes, another group. They said, it's not going to happen by violence. It'll happen when a group of us withdraws because we live in a polluted and messed up world. When, when we just withdraw into our holy little cloister, then, then God will see us becoming pure. And when God sees our purity, then he'll act. And there was another group who said, no, it's not going to happen by violence. It's not going to happen when we withdraw into the desert, into a little cloister. No, 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 says the Pharisees. It's going to happen when we reform our nation, when we start doing the Torah, when every man is like a priest of his own household, and the Torah, the Scriptures, get obeyed to the absolute letter of the law. Then the kingdom will come and God will restore us. And there was a fourth group, 
They said it's not by violence. It's not by withdrawing into the wilderness and hiding away and being pure. It's not just going to come by reformation and obeying the book. The Sadducees, they said, no, it's going to come when we compromise. When we cozy up to these Roman guys and get some leverage and some influence. Let's work with them. And as we work with them, we'll get what we need, the kingdom. Big debates. Four groups all arguing about how for the Jewish people, the kingdom of God would come and the promise would be outworked. But the one thing that all four of them agreed on, and and on this there was no debating, Jesus' followers as well, everyone agreed on who the kingdom was going to be good news for. It was going to be good news for Israel, for the sons and daughters of Abraham, for the righteous. That's who the kingdom is coming for. And then, in the fullness of time, came a rabbi with authority, Shmiha. Jesus. And his message went something like this here. The kingdom has now come. (laughs) I am it. In me, this is it. My body, my life, my way of being, my understanding of the Father, what I teach, my death on the cross for sins, my resurrection that's going to take care of the death problem. The kingdom of God has now come through me. (laughs) And that got him into a fair bit of trouble, as you could imagine. And now, Jesus drops a bomb on his followers, on the people who believed that he was the Messiah, the Christ, the people who had left their nets to follow him, the people who were his friends, the people who were his insiders. This is Mark's gospel chapter 4. He's been teaching in Galilee, which is like his home territory. And all his disciples are with him, and and things are going along pretty well. It's been a long, hot, busy day. He's been teaching about the kingdom. He's been healing and showing miracles as an evidence of the kingdom. And when he's done all that teaching stuff, when evening came, he says to his disciples, verse 35, let's go over to the other side. Now that's the bomb. That phrase right there, the other side. We miss it. Like in the story, we see the part of the storm and Jesus calming the storm and the disciples being afraid, but the bomb comes first. We miss it, but Jewish people don't miss it. And his disciples, many of them who had fished the waters of Galilee, they certainly didn't miss it. In Jesus' day, the other side of the lake was a technical term, not just a geographical term. The other side of the lake was used in his day to refer to this region here, which is called the Decapolis. The Decapolis. It's a Greek word, and it means 10 cities, a Greek word, not a Hebrew word, not an Aramaic word. It's a Greek, a Greek word. This area here, the other side, that's where the Gentiles live. 
the unclean pagan pigs lived. That's enemy territory. There was a Jewish rabbinical tradition in Jesus' day. Uh, when Israel was first occupying Palestine, they had been given a promise. It's recorded in Joshua chapter 3. God, says the Scriptures, will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Jebusites, and the San Franciscoites. It's there. Trust me, I used to be a pastor, okay? They were known as the seven nations of Canaan. And they were talked about even in Jesus' day, Acts chapter 13. It says, God overthrew the seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to his people as an inheritance. And the rabbinic tradition of Jesus' day suggests that the Decapolis, this area here, the other side, that's where the seven nations of Canaan settled. It was filled with pagan temples. You can go there today. Excavation work has been done, and you'll see buildings of amazing splendor, and you'll notice the ruins of how they featured cults. And those cults exalted sexuality and violence and wealth. This area here was everything that Israel was not. Anybody know what animal is regarded as the most unclean, most repulsive animal in Israel? The pig, okay? The pig. In the Decapolis, in the Canaanite religion, the pig was regarded as a sacred animal. And it was part of what was used when they would worship together. The Decapolis, the other side, was also a center of Roman power. There was in the Decapolis a legion. Take a note of that name. A legion, okay? A legion of Roman soldiers. Now, a legion was 6,000 troops. And they were stationed in the Decapolis. And you know this? The symbol of a Roman legion was a boar's head. The head of a wild pig. So the Jews regarded the other side as the place where Satan lived. It was dark. It was evil. It was oppressive. It was demonic. Nobody goes to the other side, especially no rabbi ever goes to the other side. And then one day, the disciples find that their rabbi, Jesus, after he's finished a really good day of ministry, just casually says, come on, guys, let's go over to the other side. What? What's he doing? Doesn't he know that the kingdom is for our side? It's almost like he doesn't know that's the other side. It's almost like he thinks it's his side. It's almost like he thinks all the people on the earth are going to be blessed through him, even the seven nations of Canaan. Am I preaching yet? Yeah, a bunch of white folk. Come on. You know? Hey, guys, he says, let's go over to the other side. Get in the boat. So they do. They get in the boat. How are the disciples feeling about this trip? Not happy campers. They're confused. They're irritated. 
They're scared out of their wits. And just to prove their fears right, as they sail over to the other side, a storm comes up, a real bad storm. Well, of course it would. On the other side, they play with the dark powers. They worship them. And this now adds even more tension to the situation. And to top it all off, they are mad that Jesus is asleep in the boat. Aren't you concerned that we're going to die? They shout at Jesus as they shake him awake. And Jesus replies, not particularly. And with seeming ease, and there's no wand in his hand, no incantations, it's, it's as if he's just talking to an unruly child. Jesus just says, be quiet, be still. Now, everybody knew ancient culture from Jerusalem to Britain. <clears throat> Notice we don't say America there, because <laughs> you're not ancient, okay? Ancient culture from Rome, Jerusalem to England. They believed that the sea was uncontrollable by any power. It's a symbol of unstoppable destruction. It's full of fury. In fact, if you read the Hebrew Scriptures, lower Sheol, where, where Hades is, is under the sea. There's monsters. The only one who could control the sea was God. And Jesus yawns and says, Oh, be quiet, be still. And it does. And now here's the irony. The disciples in the boat, they begin to act like the crowds who've been around Jesus since he appeared on the scene. Like if you read Mark 1, 2, 3, 4, where Jesus goes, he does things, and people say, who is this man? Who is this man? Who is this man? And now the disciples who know Jesus and follow him, they now turn to each other and say, who is this man? And now chapter 5. They land on the other side. And immediately, there's something different. Nobody's there to see them. Like on this side, they've been having huge crowds wherever Jesus went. But now no crowds come to see him. There's only one man. He's a demon-possessed man who is so desperate that he's been thrown out of his community. They've tried to bind him with chains to keep him from being destructive, but that doesn't work. He cries out all the time, and that kind of bothers the neighbors. They wanted nothing to do with him. He cuts himself with rocks until he bleeds, and so they get rid of him to the outskirts of the town, and he lives amongst the tombs at the edge of the lake. And that's the reception committee for Jesus and his disciples when they get to the other side. And this man falls to his knees. He's terrified. And he says, Mark 5, verse 7, what do you want with me? In God's name, don't torture me. Now, it's not the man that's speaking. It's the evil spirits within the man that are speaking. And Jesus turns to the evil spirits, and Jesus says, What is your name? Verse 9. And verse 9, part B, the response is, Legion. Ding, 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 ding. Legion, for we are many. 
legion. It's that loaded word. There's a legion of foreign soldiers, and this is where they live. That word, legion, is a reminder of all the powers that Jesus is up against, political powers, military powers, and now spiritual powers. But these evil spirits are afraid of Jesus, and they ask to be sent into a herd of animals. And the text tells us that they ask to be sent into the pigs that are nearby. Now, that's a kind of, again, a loaded story, okay? And it says, verse 13 of chapter 5, that the 2,000 pigs ahead of them rushed down a steep bank into the lake, and they drown. Now, this reads very differently in Jesus' day than in our day. Remember, pigs were sacred to the Canaanites. To the Jewish people, if you ever read the book First Maccabees, so the Old Testament ends with the Italian prophet Malachi, and it starts the New Testament with Matthew. It's not Italian prophet Malachi, it's Malachi, okay? <laughs> but between Malachi and Matthew, there's 500 years. Things aren't silent at that period. There's what's known as the intertestamental writings. We don't hold them in our Bible because we don't view them as inspired by God. But those writings are really interesting writings. They're sacred writings to a degree. In fact, if you look at the Catholic Bible, they include those writings. Very interesting to read. You should try them, okay? Well, one of the guys was a guy called Maccabees. He was a Jewish patriot. And he wrote in First Maccabees about how Rome forced his people, the Jews, to eat the flesh of pigs, most forbidden under Jewish law. But when they resisted eating the pork banger, they were slaughtered. So the pigs, sacred to the Canaanites, the pigs are also a symbol of Roman power. There was another guy, Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV ruled uh, the Syrian Empire, okay, or the Seleucid Empire. And he also controlled Israel for a period of time. There was one story of how he came through Israel, through Jerusalem. He came to the holy temple. He got rid of all that was in the temple. He then brings a pig, and he sacrifices it on the holy of holies. And that same day as he left, he slaughtered 4,000 Jews. Sorry, 40,000 Jews. Jews. This is why some people view Antiochus IV as Daniel's famous abomination of desolation. Either way, okay, the pigs symbolize Canaanite religion in all of its error, the Roman Empire and all of its power, the history of being persecuted and brutally violently attacked by other emperors. On that side, they see the pigs as symbols of everything dark, everything bad, everything unclean, everything that's against God. And the writer is helping us see that there's a big spiritual contest that's going on here. And the pigs lose. Aye, 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 you're nearly there, okay? Jesus casts the evil spirit's legion, out of the man into the unclean animals who then charge down a steep cliff and they drown in the sea 
that Jesus had made calm. Like, like originally, this story was meant to be humorous. From a Jewish audience, this was humor. This was a joke being told. Now, obviously, we do humor differently in Stockton, okay? <laughs> you know, like we do humor like conjunctivitis.com. Now, there's a site for sore eyes. That's humor, you see? You know, or why do husbands die before their wives? They want to. That's funny, okay? Okay? You know, when I was younger, when I was younger, I felt like a man trapped inside a woman's body. Then I was born. That's... That's humor, as we do humor, okay, you know, okay? However, uh, you know, I've just been on a once-in-a-lifetime holiday. I tell you, never again. Some of you will get that in the parking lot, okay? But in Jesus' day, in Jesus' day, the scene of the, of the evil spirits leaving the unclean man and entering into the unclean pigs who then die in the waters made still by a Jewish rabbi named Jesus. That's funny. That's funny. And then something not so funny happens. The people plead, verse 17, with Jesus to leave the region. This is really interesting for me. There's this great power at work, and they're afraid. And the people come out and say, Jesus, leave, leave. They don't respond to the miracle by saying, fabulous. I've got some other people who are possessed or ill or sick. I'm going to bring them to Jesus. That's what they did on this side, but not on the other side. They don't do that. Why? Because he's got power, but he's not one of us. He's from the other side. And he might use his power to hurt us. Religious sociologists among us, this is fascinating. This is worthy of further study, how other people view we've each got our other sides. That's another story in itself, okay? So they beg him to go away, and Jesus says, okay, I'll go. I'll go. How many times in history has Jesus been asked to leave? How many homes? How many families? How many businesses? How many schools? How many counties? How many states? How many countries has Jesus been asked to leave? How many churches has Jesus been asked to leave? How many times have I asked him to leave? Oh, maybe not as bluntly as the people on the other side, but when his agenda clashes with my desires, when his directives clash with my wants, when I ignore him, <laughs> I'm asking him to leave, even just for an hour or two. And when asked to leave, Jesus will always say, okay. I'll go. So as he gets in the boat to go to go away, 
verse 18, the man who's been demon-possessed begs to go with him. He falls on his knees again, and he says, I've been living here with darkness my whole life. It's destroyed me. It's ruined me. I want to be with you. I want to learn from you. I want to be one of your followers. Take me with you. Let me go. There's room in the boat. He doesn't just make the request. The story tells us that he begs. He's desperate. And Jesus says, no. What? Like over here on this side, Jesus has been going around saying, come follow me, come follow me, leave what you're doing, follow me, follow me. And now here's a man over here saying, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, no, stay here. Go tell your story. Imagine the man's feelings when the boat draws away and he's not in it. And there's a crowd of people who've just lost 2,000 pigs, but that's a whole other story. But he says to himself, verse 20, I'll do what he says because he saved my life. And if he asks me to tell other people, that's exactly what I'll do. And this man becomes the first missionary to the Gentiles before the apostle Paul. The 10 cities, the Decapolis, he goes from one city to the next city to the next city to the next city. Can I tell you my story? You know who I used to be. Can I tell you my story? Can I tell you about this man called Jesus? Now, you still get your Bibles open? Run to chapter 6. Nearly there, folks. Run to chapter 6. And go down to verse 45. Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 45. <laughs> Jesus makes his disciples get into a boat and go ahead to the other side. <laughs> Here we go again. And as they cross over to the other side, guess what happens? A storm comes up. <laughs> yeah, lightning does strike twice. But when they get to verse 53, after they'd crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and anchored there. And as they got out of the boat, people immediately recognized Jesus. They ran through that whole region and began to bring the sick and mats to wherever he was rumored to be. And wherever he would go into villages, towns, or countrysides, they would place the sick in the marketplaces and would ask him if they could just touch the edge of his cloak. And all who touched it were healed. The first time they went over to the other side, nobody was home. One pathetic man. Everybody else begged him to leave. The second time he comes, it's one of the most dramatic responses in all of the New Testament. People are more receptive to Jesus than almost any other place. What happened? One man told the story. One man told the story of what Jesus did for him, and it changed ten cities. It changed the other side. And you have such a story. You have such a story. Has Jesus made you whole? Has Jesus changed your life? Has he freed you? Has he cleansed you? Have you experienced his mercy and his grace? Do you know his salvation? So I tell my Twix story. Everywhere I go, how it caused me to quit being a pastor and start carrying hope to the people living in some of the worst slums on planet Earth who've given up on hope. That's my story. What's yours? 
what you tell people, what you tell your colleagues, what you tell your neighbors, what you tell your extended family, what you're going to tell your kids and your grandkids. You have a story. And here's the big question as we end. And don't forget to buy a Twix. Okay, 20 bucks. Or just write, just write me a check when I grow up. Here's the question. Who or what is your other side? That's the question. For me, it was people living in slums. I grew up in comfort. I grew up with a proverbial silver spoon in my mouth, not just one, but two or three. I had no idea how half the world live in slums on under $2 a day. I had to cross over to the other side. Now, what's your other side? The world that you don't know, the people that you don't know, the people who you think you cannot relate to, they're the opposite. <laughs> Maybe for some of you, it's the Raiders fan next door. <laughs> no, that's the dark side. That's the dark side. Uh, that's worse, okay? Go to Bears. Maybe for you, I'm from Chicago. Can you not tell by the accent? Okay. Maybe for you, it's a migrant mother. She drops her kid off at your kid's school, and you never speak to her, and you don't know her language. She lives in a different culture than you do. Or maybe for some, it's the vocal atheist that's in your office place. He's just an antagonist, or she. And you don't really talk to her or him about faith or church. Maybe for some of you, it's a son or a nephew, or an uncle. And they are the furthest away from ever wanting to know Jesus as far as you can think. Followers of Jesus always cross over to the other side. Because the other side are just a story away from knowing Jesus. Just a story away. It could be your story. Or your story. Or my story. May you cross over and tell your story for Jesus' sake. Let's pray. God, in an act of amazing grace, you have given us each a story. A story that features you from the beginning to the end. And even although there was times where we tried to run from you, you brought us back. And we have a story to tell. May the people of Stockton First Baptist begin to tell their story. What would happen in their families, in their workplaces, in their community, if everyone told their story? Oh God, by your Spirit, 
birth in us this week, not just a knowledge of who the other side is for us, but may you inspire us to write out our story and begin to tell it. In Jesus' name, amen.